we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. At 3.47 on the morning of Thursday, August 9th, 1945, three airplanes took off from the island of Tinian, bound for Kokura, Japan. On one plane was New York Times science writer William Lawrence. On another was a device that Lawrence referred to as the gadget. Foggy weather conditions forced the planes to divert from Kokura, instead flying over Nagasaki, Japan. There, the plane released the gadget, a weapon of mass destruction that the world would come to know as the atomic bomb. In Lawrence's New York Times piece, he wrote, quote, Out of the belly of the great artiste, what looked like a black object went downward. A tremendous blast wave struck our ship and made it tremble from nose to tail. This was followed by four more blasts in rapid succession each resounding like the boom of cannon fire hitting our plane from all directions. A giant ball of fire rose as though from the bowels of the earth, belching forth enormous white smoke rings, end quote. With the deployment of atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, the United States permanently changed the course of military technology. In the seven decades since, The existence of atomic bombs has shaped the nature of international politics. To some, nuclear deterrence policies represent an end to traditional warfare and countless lives saved. To others, unlocking the secrets of nuclear weaponry put humanity on a destructive path from which it can never return. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. 
complicated. Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories from the ParCast Network. Each week, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, many listeners ask us how they can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. This is the first of two episodes about the Manhattan Project, a government initiative to develop nuclear weaponry during World War II. A top-secret effort begun in 1942, the Manhattan Project employed over 100,000 employees, most of whom didn't even know the nature of the project they were working on. The project encompassed entire secret towns, the top scientific minds of a generation, and a budget of $2.2 billion, the equivalent of over $30 billion today. The Manhattan Project was responsible for developing the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, on August 6th and 9th, 1945. Nearly 150,000 people are estimated to have been killed in the initial atomic blast, and an estimated 150,000 more died as a result of radiation poisoning or cancer. The Manhattan Project was a top-secret military initiative, so many of the facts we'll discuss today will sound like conspiracy theories. However, today we're just focusing on the official story of the project. Next week, we'll explore conspiracy theories around the project. Were key Manhattan Project officials relaying confidential information to the Soviet Union while they posed as loyal patriots? Did the development of atomic weapons attract attention from extraterrestrials? And did Manhattan Project officials intentionally falsify records regarding the risks of nuclear byproducts like fluoride, which are still present in our drinking water today? Finally, we'll discuss some more oddball theories. For example, that key mathematical formulas that contributed to atomic weapon development were discovered as a result of trans-dimensional travel, or that the Manhattan Project was founded on the orders of a secret pagan society. For today, though, we'll just focus on the official story of the Manhattan Project, a story that starts years before the project officially began. One of the earliest figures in nuclear science was a physicist named Leo Szilard, He was born in Budapest, Hungary, and was a close friend to other physicists, including Albert Einstein. In 1933, the same year Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, Szilard fled to London as a refugee from Nazi persecution. Later, Szilard and Einstein both relocated to the United States of America, where Szilard accepted a teaching position at Columbia University. On September 12, 1933, Szilard read a newspaper report about a speech by a physicist named Ernest Rutherford, who declared splitting an atom 
to be impossible. Sealar disagreed with Rutherford's conclusion and went for a walk to muse over the topic. As he waited for a traffic light to change, Sealard had a flash of inspiration and envisioned a nuclear chain reaction. To understand how a nuclear chain reaction works, let's break things down to the basics. All matter is made up of atoms, which in turn are made up of three kinds of particles, protons, electrons, and neutrons. Neutrons are located in the center of an atom, the nucleus. When an atom splits, its nucleus breaks apart and neutrons are lost. This triggers a large release of energy. If the neutron from one atom strikes the nucleus of another atom and knocks loose its neutrons, a process called fission has occurred. Szilard hypothesized that one neutron could strike an atom's nucleus in such a way that the atom would release two of its neutrons. Each of those neutrons would release two neutrons from the next atom, and so on, with an exponential release of energy with every collision. While Szilard didn't know how to achieve this kind of chain reaction, the possibility was the key to future nuclear studies. In 1939, mere months before Nazi Germany invaded Poland and kicked off World War II, Szilard learned that German scientists had discovered nuclear fission, an important first step that could lead to his hypothesized chain reactions. Szilard feared the Germans were closer than ever to weaponizing atomic energy. He sought to draw attention to the danger of a nuclear-armed Germany and convinced his friend Albert Einstein to write a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt in August 1939. In the letter, Einstein said, quote, It may be possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of this type may thus be constructed." End quote. While most of Einstein's letter focused on defining and explaining the concept of a nuclear chain reaction and how such a process could be weaponized, he closed with a subtle warning that Germany had acquired Czechoslovakian uranium, the substance needed to create these nuclear reactions. The implication was clear. On October 21st, 1939, Roosevelt formed the Advisory Committee on Uranium. This committee gathered information on nuclear studies already in progress and funded scientists exploring applications of uranium, including Szilard, who was exploring chain reactions at Columbia University. Unlike later Manhattan Project studies, some of the discoveries funded by the Advisory Committee on Uranium were public knowledge at the time. In May 1940, Szilard and his team discovered a form of uranium dubbed U-235, which had a massive explosive potential that far exceeded anything else scientists had discovered yet. Soon after the discovery, an article appeared in the New York Times penned by their science writer, William Lawrence. He wrote, quote, a chunk of five to 10 pounds of the new substance, a close relative of uranium and known as U-235, would possess the power output of 25 million to 50 million pounds of coal, or of 15 million to 30 million pounds of gasoline, end quote. The next month in June of 1940, 
President Roosevelt formed the National Defense Research Committee, which absorbed and restructured the Advisory Committee on Uranium. Among other changes, the National Defense Research Committee banned publications covering their research and discoveries, and they allowed only natural-born United States citizens to work on uranium research. This prohibition against immigrants was just one instance of the racism in American culture during World War II. The paranoia surrounding foreign espionage grew so great that shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order to relocate 117,000 people of Japanese ancestry, most of them American citizens, to internment camps. Once the United States joined World War II, the National Defense Research Committee was absorbed into a larger military effort, which came to be known as the Manhattan Project. While the Manhattan Project abandoned the policy forbidding immigrants, they maintained segregation policies and barred black scientists and physicists. In 1942, the Army Corps of Engineers opened a top-secret project with offices in Manhattan. The project, named for its home city, combined numerous research efforts nationwide into a single directive to develop nuclear weaponry. Colonel Leslie R. Groves was appointed to lead the project. The Manhattan Project was both an offensive and defensive effort. Top military officials feared that Germany was already well on its way to developing nuclear weaponry, and the goal was to develop atomic weapons before the United States' enemies could use such weapons against them. Groves recruited the top scientists in the United States to develop the atomic bomb. As for Einstein, who had initiated the process with his letter to President Roosevelt, he was never officially a member of the Manhattan Project, as his leftist political leanings were viewed as a threat to security. However, Einstein's mathematical theories were key to the development of nuclear weaponry, including his famous formula, E equals MC squared. This formula describes the relationship between and ratio of energy and mass, which explains how a small atomic bomb can release such a great amount of energy. The Manhattan Project was overseen by James Forrestal, a World War I Navy aviator turned businessman who became Secretary of the Navy in 1944. During the atomic bomb's development, Forrestal had severe reservations about actually using the weapon, which we'll discuss later this episode. One of the most notable figures in the Manhattan Project was a physicist named Julius Robert Oppenheimer. As a student, Oppenheimer was brilliant, but unfocused, splitting his attention among topics as diverse as quantum theory, Sanskrit, French poetry, and progressive ethics. That passion for ethics eventually led Oppenheimer to the Communist Party. Although he never officially joined, as a young man, Oppenheimer regularly donated money to the Communist Party in San Francisco, and many of his close friends were known party members. He was romantically involved with, and may have been secretly engaged to, an active Communist Party member named Gene Tatlock until they broke up in 1939. In line with his Communist leanings, Oppenheimer long opposed becoming involved with the war effort. 
He believed that scientists had a moral obligation to apply their studies to the betterment of humanity, not to building weapons. However, as anti-communist sentiment became more prevalent in the United States, Oppenheimer found that being open about his political associations limited his professional opportunities. Not to mention the Manhattan Project would provide him with resources he'd never have otherwise to unlock the secrets of the physical world. It was an exciting prospect for a passionate physicist of any political persuasion. In 1942, shortly after the United States officially entered World War II, J. Robert Oppenheimer joined the Manhattan Project to help develop the atomic bomb. He oversaw operations in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a location known as Site Y. Due to Oppenheimer's ties to the Communist Party, he almost failed his security clearance check, but given his brilliance and his passion for physics, The head of the Manhattan Project, General Groves, convinced his project security officer to make an exception. The race to develop the first atomic bomb inspired some risky decision-making on the part of the Manhattan Project's leaders. As for Oppenheimer, from the beginning, he had mixed feelings about his work on the project. On the one hand, he was violating his ethical beliefs by building a bomb, potentially the most deadly bomb in the history of mankind. On the other hand, Oppenheimer believed that a single bomb might end the war immediately, saving uncountable lives of soldiers in the long term. Ultimately, the atomic bomb could even be a tool for peace. Perhaps, he reasoned, after World War II, the threat of nuclear weapons would even be a strong enough deterrent to end war for all time. Looking back, it's clear that he was incorrect. Oppenheimer may not have been fully convinced either, but he committed himself to bettering humanity by developing the most destructive weapon the world had ever seen. Coming next, we'll examine Oppenheimer's work. Now back to the story. Before we delve into the specifics of the atomic bomb's development from 1941 to 1945, There's one more key figure involved in the Manhattan Project to discuss, William Lawrence, dubbed Atomic Bill. We already mentioned him earlier this episode. Lawrence wrote about the discovery of U-235 and, eventually, the report on the bombing of Nagasaki. Lawrence was the science reporter for the New York Times, and in his pursuit of breaking scientific news, he frequently reported on early developments in nuclear research before the government began classifying atomic studies. On January 31, 1939, Lawrence ran an article titled Vast Energy Freed by Uranium Atom, reporting on the immense energy released when scientists split a uranium atom. The next year, Lawrence reported on the discovery of U-235, as discussed earlier this episode. Then, in September 1940, his article, The Atom Gives Up, featured information so sensitive, the director of the Manhattan Project, General Groves, began tracking library access in order to identify and track Americans who had an unusual interest in atomic energy. In 1945, Groves recruited Lawrence to serve as a reporter on the Manhattan Project. Counterintuitive as it sounds, 
Groves wanted a reporter on site for his top secret, classified military operation, so that key breakthroughs could be documented and released to the public after the project was declassified. Lawrence had shown an unusual knack for finding and reporting on nuclear breakthroughs, and he may have been recruited to the Manhattan Project so that Groves could control what information Lawrence published and when. Throughout Lawrence's service in the Manhattan Project, none of his reports were published, and from the perspective of the public, he simply stopped reporting without explanation. His final New York Times article ran on March 10, 1945, and he joined the Manhattan Project in April of the same year. But during his long public silence, he witnessed several key moments in atomic research, including the world's first ever atomic bomb test. The Manhattan Project, in spite of its name, was a nationwide effort. It incorporated locations throughout the United States, including Los Alamos, New Mexico, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Dayton, Ohio, where Monsanto developed a necessary radioactive element called polonium-210. That's the same Monsanto that is well known today as an agricultural company that develops genetically engineered crops. But in the middle of the 20th century, Monsanto was primarily a chemical company, The head of Monsanto's Central Research Department, Dr. Charles Allen Thomas, joined the Manhattan Project in 1943 to assist in research at Los Alamos. By summer of that same year, Manhattan Project engineers knew they would need to generate more polonium to continue their efforts. Thomas assumed that responsibility, using the Ohio Monsanto facilities to develop the polonium. Soon, Thomas realized Monsanto needed to expand to meet the military's needs. In Dayton, Ohio, they repurposed a warehouse, a school, and a sports complex into administrative offices, laboratories, and a polonium production plant. That very same polonium they generated was used in the Little Boy and Fat Man bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. Meanwhile, Oak Ridge, Tennessee was functionally a company town for Manhattan Project employees and their families. Located on government-owned land, surrounded by fences and with armed guards posted at every entrance, Oak Ridge housed roughly 75,000 people, most of whom weren't even aware of the exact nature of the project they worked on. Oak Ridge, like Los Alamos and other Manhattan Project locations, was chosen because its remote location allowed scientists the space needed to build massive nuclear facilities without attracting the sort of attention such an undertaking would draw in a more populous setting. Oak Ridge was filled with propaganda billboards warning against disclosing any information about their secret work. It housed a nuclear reactor to produce plutonium and two sites dedicated to uranium enrichment. Oak Ridge also housed administrative and military headquarters for Manhattan Project officials. Even more secretive was the work done in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Here, Oppenheimer oversaw Site Y, responsible for designing and assembling the first atomic bombs. The location was so top secret, Los Alamos didn't appear on any maps at the time. Workers and their families didn't have formal addresses, and all mail for the 5,000 residents was delivered to a single P.O. Box, 1663. 
Los Alamos residents needed military approval to enter or leave the town. In 1944, the Cleveland Press interviewed New Mexico residents who lived near Los Alamos and ran a story titled Forbidden City. The article read, quote, New Mexico has a mystery city, one with an area from 8 to 20 square miles, according to guesses. If you like mysteries and have a keen desire to solve one, here's your opportunity to do a little sleuthing. And if you succeed in learning anything and then making it public, you will satisfy the hot curiosity of several hundred thousand New Mexicans, end quote. When the head of the Manhattan Project, Colonel Gross, became aware of the article, he contacted the Cleveland Press to prevent any republications. He even considered, but rejected, a plan to silence the reporter by drafting him into the army. Groves and the U.S. government did what they could to prevent leaks, but for a project this large in scope, it was almost impossible to keep all of the Manhattan Project's work hidden. Even with the strictest security, at least 1,500 leaks have been identified since the project concluded. Employees on the Manhattan Project were under strict orders not to discuss their work with anyone, including their own family members. But workers couldn't keep the secrets to themselves. They were overheard at parties, had letters intercepted, and in one case, an employee based in New York misplaced a folder full of sensitive documents at Penn Station. In addition to inadvertent leaks, the Manhattan Project was also a major target for international espionage. Many foreign spies were not enemy Axis powers, but from the Soviet Union. Although the United States and the Soviet Union were allies in World War II, the nations were deeply suspicious of one another due to the fundamental differences between capitalism and communism. Two of the most famous atomic Soviet spies were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius was a communist and a member of aspiring of engineers. He collaborated with Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, who worked for the Manhattan Project at its Los Alamos location. Greenglass gathered atomic secrets, which he relayed to Julius, who in turn provided the information to his Soviet handlers. Another prolific Soviet spy was Klaus Fuchs, a major physicist at the Los Alamos location. He worked with highly confidential information on bomb construction and was instrumental to the Soviet Union's own atomic bomb development efforts. David Greenglass and Klaus Fuchs both operated out of Los Alamos, the same project-wise site overseen by J. Robert Oppenheimer. The numerous major security breaches under Oppenheimer's watch could have been a coincidence or just bad luck, but the numerous Soviet spies working with Oppenheimer, coupled with his communist leanings, has been taken by some as evidence of Oppenheimer's complicity. In spite of these leaks, the United States led the race to develop an atomic bomb. Although Germany surrendered on May 8, 1945, the United States was still fighting the Pacific War against Japan, and the Manhattan Project continued. On July 16, 1945, the leaders of the Manhattan Project were ready to test their first bomb, officially launching what would come to be known as the Atomic Age. The bomb was called the Gadget, and Oppenheimer dubbed the test itself Trinity. 
containing over 5,000 pounds of TNT that would detonate its 15 pounds of plutonium, the gadget was dropped from a 100-foot tower in the New Mexico desert. Prior to the test, the engineers weren't entirely clear what the result of the atomic bomb would be. One hypothesis, which proved to be correct, was a massive nuclear explosion. Another potential outcome? The bomb could prove to be a dud, and nothing would happen when it was dropped. Some feared that the atomic explosion would be so powerful, it would ignite the atmosphere and render the Earth itself uninhabitable. Oppenheimer's scientists had calculated the extreme unlikelihood of global destruction, but couldn't be certain of the outcome. Even the fear of worldwide annihilation didn't stop Manhattan Project engineers from dropping the gadget at 5.30 a.m. on July 16, 1945. The engineers witnessed a flash of light, followed by a heat wave and a massive mushroom cloud. Civilians from miles around the site of the Trinity test witnessed the bomb's flash, although they had no way of knowing what they'd seen. The engineers were awed at the destructive power of the gadget. It obliterated the tower and transformed the desert sand at the blast site into glass. To describe his feelings about the atomic destruction, Oppenheimer fell back on his love of the Hindu religion, quoting the Hindu god Vishnu from the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Many leaders of the Manhattan Project initially believed that Nazi Germany was their primary adversary. Fear of a nuclear Germany had spurred the formation of the Manhattan Project in the first place, and many engineers assumed that if the bomb were to be used at all, it would be dropped in Europe. However, Germany had surrendered before an atomic bomb was developed or tested. When Oppenheimer notified U.S. military leadership of the success of the Trinity test on July 16, there was only one possible target left, Japan, which hadn't yet surrendered and was still at war with the United States. A key factor in the decision to drop the nuclear bomb on Japan was the Soviet Union. In the days after Germany's surrender, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, was troubled by the Soviet Union's influence over negotiations for the terms of Germany's surrender. Until 1945, the Soviet Union had been primarily occupied with the fighting in Europe. Forrestal resolved to end the Pacific War and secure an unconditional surrender from Japan before the Soviet Union could switch focus and exert their influence over this fight as well. When the USSR's General Secretary of the Communist Party, Joseph Stalin, declared they would join the war against Japan by August 15, 1945, U.S. leaders knew the clock was ticking to secure a Japanese surrender. After days of debate, President Truman authorized use of the atomic bomb on July 25th. He granted General Groves discretion to launch any day after August 3rd, pendant on when the bombs would be available and when weather conditions would be right. On July 26th, the United States, China, and Great Britain issued the Potsdam Declaration, which laid out terms for Japanese surrender. Thanks in part to the efforts of the Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, the Potsdam Declaration included a warning of the consequences should the Japanese refuse the terms of surrender. It read, quote, 
The full application of our military power, backed by our resolve, will mean the inevitable and complete destruction of the Japanese armed forces, and just as inevitably, the utter devastation of the Japanese homeland." End quote. The Japanese government refused the terms as laid out in the Potsdam Declaration. Coming next, we'll see the devastating consequences of that refusal. Now, back to the story. On August 6, 1945, the smaller of the two bombs that had been engineered by the Manhattan Project, dubbed Little Boy, was loaded onto a plane called the Enola Gay. At 8.15 Hiroshima time, the Enola Gay dropped the Little Boy. The bomb fell for 45 seconds before exploding. The blast of the bomb was so strong, the plane's pilot initially believed the Japanese were firing on him. Immediately after explosion, the bomb incinerated buildings and people close to the detonation site. Those who survived saw a blinding flash of light and shortly thereafter felt a blast of heat. 90% of the people within a half-mile radius of the detonation site died within a few minutes of the explosion. The heat of the bomb caused wooden buildings to burst into flame throughout the city burning down roughly four and a half square miles of Hiroshima. More people who had survived the initial blast but were injured or trapped died in the fires that followed. In total, an estimated 70,000 people died in the atomic blast and its aftermath. Ultimately, it would prove difficult to determine the exact death toll. The Japanese didn't have records of Hiroshima's population and as such didn't have any way of determining how many people were missing after the bombing. However, the U.S. military would later estimate that more than half the city's population died due to the bomb's blast and the fires it ignited. On August 6th at 11 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, 16 hours after the little boy detonated over Hiroshima, President Truman addressed the people of the United States. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. Truman's address was the first confirmation of what had occurred even for Japanese officials who had lost radio contact with Hiroshima and were unable to determine what had happened to the city. After the powerful demonstration of the atomic bomb's deadly power, the U.S. government once again gave the Japanese government the opportunity to surrender. Again, Japan refused. And so, Groves proceeded with yet another atomic bombing to happen as soon as the weather conditions were right. The next opportunity arrived three days later on August 9th. Early that morning, a plane called Boxcar was loaded with a larger, more powerful atomic bomb, dubbed Fat Man. The plane's target was a group of military factories outside the city of Kokura. However, due to unanticipated cloud cover, the pilots were unable to spot their target and so they changed plans in order to pursue a secondary target, Nagasaki. Due to a fear of air raids earlier that week, Nagasaki was already partially evacuated. 
Thankfully, most of the city's school-aged children were relocated well before the bombing. However, there were still roughly 200,000 people, including civilians, in Nagasaki when the atomic bomb dubbed Fat Man was dropped, right after 11 a.m. Nagasaki time. Although Fat Man had a larger payload than Little Boy, Nagasaki was spared some of the worst results of its blast thanks to nearby hills that absorbed the heat. Also, Fat Man exploded over an industrial area rather than residential or business areas of the city. Even so, Nagasaki witnessed the same horrors as Hiroshima, the instant obliteration of everyone and everything within a half a mile of the explosion, the bright light and heat, and the massive fires. All in all, an estimated 40,000 people, or a third of the city's population, died in the aftermath of Fat Man's explosion. But the blast wasn't the worst of the damage. Beginning about a week after the bombings, people who had been in or near Hiroshima and Nagasaki began exhibiting strange symptoms of an unusual medical condition dubbed disease X or the atomic plague. Patients' blood wouldn't clot, so they bled to death from minor injuries. Others watched their flesh rot away. Seemingly healthy people would begin to feel ill and then drop dead of no obvious cause. And the best doctors in Japan were unable to explain what caused the strange illnesses. Based on prior testing, United States scientists knew that the bomb would emit radiation, but they had never anticipated the radiation would be enough to cause sickness or death. They believed anyone close enough to the explosion to receive a lethal dose of radiation would die from the blast, well before they could begin exhibiting the symptoms of radiation poisoning. On August 12, 1945, in anticipation of imminent Japanese surrender, Groves issued orders to form Manhattan Project atomic bomb investigating groups. These groups, comprised of Manhattan Project engineers and physicists, would travel to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to study the results of the atomic bomb explosion. The terms the United States had offered the Japanese included allied occupation until the Japanese could offer convincing proof that they were completely dematerialized, and the investigating groups would work with those occupying forces. While Manhattan Project researchers had already conducted tests in the desert, this was their first and only chance to review the aftermath of a bomb's explosion in a city where people lived. On August 17th, the first investigating group arrived in Nagasaki. They spent about a month examining the physical damage of the atomic bomb. Typhoons delayed the Hiroshima investigating group, who didn't arrive at their destination until September 26th, and only had 10 days to gather data in order to be compliant with their orders for a prompt report. Both investigating groups determined that while ambient radiation in and around Hiroshima and Nagasaki was elevated, it was still within a safe range. Visits to hospitals demonstrated that there were no cases of radiation poisoning among people who had arrived in Hiroshima or Nagasaki after the bombs were dropped. As for those who had been in the cities at the time of detonation, the evidence of radiation poisoning was unavoidable and sobering. Based on the reports they received, General Groves decided to cover up evidence of the so-called atomic plague. 
reports from the Manhattan Project atomic bomb investigating groups were classified. Photography and video recording in and around Hiroshima and Nagasaki was banned. When a Japanese film crew recording footage for a film reel arrived in Nagasaki on October 24, 1945, the U.S. military officials occupying the city ordered them to stop recording and confiscated their footage. Around that same time, the U.S. Army deployed a cameraman named Lieutenant McGovern to record the aftermath of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings and send the footage back for review among officials posted stateside. McGovern combined the Japanese newsreel footage with his own original shots of destroyed buildings, the sick, the injured, and those suffering from the atomic plague. The finished project clocked in at nearly three hours. The officials who viewed the movie determined its content top secret and classified it so it would not be available to the public. A member of McGovern's crew, Herbert Susan, would later say, quote, the government could not release the film. What it showed was too horrible, end quote. The footage wasn't declassified until 1968, after the Japanese government spent over a decade pressuring the U.S. government to release it. That year, a film scholar named Eric Barno found the old footage in the National Archives and edited it down to a 16-minute short that screened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. For the first time, the American public was able to view, firsthand, the effects of the atomic bombs that had been developed and dropped 23 years earlier. In 1945, newspaper articles in the United States assured the public that the atomic plague was a myth. Most of those articles were penned by William Lawrence, the Manhattan Project's reporter. General Groves refused to allow Lawrence to return to Hiroshima or Nagasaki to view the aftermath for himself, perhaps in order to keep Lawrence ignorant of the real effects of radiation, as even the scientists of the era hadn't predicted the scope of radiation poisoning. Lawrence very well could have just been reporting the best information available to him, information he believed to be accurate. Many people who had worked on the Manhattan Project, especially J. Robert Oppenheimer and the U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, faced a crisis of conscience once the bomb they'd helped develop was actually used to kill real civilians. In 1945, in anticipation of the growing Soviet threat, Oppenheimer's superiors asked him to work on the development of a hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer refused to participate. During an address to the American Philosophical Society, Oppenheimer said of the atomic bomb, quote, We have made a thing, a most terrible weapon, a thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil thing, end quote. In 1947, the government authorized a new program called the Atomic Energy Commission, which assumed the Manhattan Project's operations in order to develop peacetime uses for the technology the project had pioneered, like nuclear power and radiation therapy. Oppenheimer served as the head of the commission's advisory committee. In spite of his new duties, Oppenheimer remained publicly outspoken about his criticisms of the government. His transgressive comments reached their peak when, in 1953, he threatened to intentionally leak a military secret to the public. 
That secret regarded a strategic air command plan to employ nuclear weapons against Soviet aggression. Oppenheimer felt the plan prioritized military tactical advantage over civilian safety. He believed the public had a right to know about these plans. President Dwight D. Eisenhower felt otherwise. Soon, the government investigated Oppenheimer's past and revisited his many connections with the Communist Party. That history, coupled with his anti-bomb criticisms, allowed them to revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance. Oppenheimer had to testify before Senator Joseph McCarthy, the senator who is today infamous for his anti-communist activism. Shortly after testifying, Oppenheimer left the Atomic Energy Commission and returned to civilian life. Oppenheimer wasn't the only Manhattan Project leader to respond with revulsion to what they'd created. The U.S. Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, had campaigned to warn the Japanese that the United States had developed nuclear weapons before the bombs were dropped. Based on diary entries he wrote during the Manhattan Project period, some have speculated that he, like Oppenheimer, struggled with feelings of guilt. In 1947, the National Security Act combined Forrestal's Department of the Navy with the Department of War, and Forrestal became the first-ever United States Secretary of Defense. During his short tenure as the Secretary of Defense, Forrestal grew increasingly agitated. Four years after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Forrestal resigned from the National Military Establishment in March 1949. He cited a non-specified illness as his cause of resignation, although some believe he was no longer emotionally able to deal with the strain of his position. For two months, Forrestal struggled with depression, fatigue, and anxiety that didn't abate after he stepped down from his position. On May 22, 1949, while staying at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, Forrestal attempted to hang himself from a window on the 16th floor. The sash he had fashioned into a noose broke, and Forrestal fell to his death, landing on an asphalt roof over a third-floor passageway. Later, investigators examined the window Forrestal had leapt from and found scuff marks under the window. The investigators determined that Forrestal must have thrashed or kicked during the short period of time that he hung from the window before his noose broke. Those scuff marks could also have been signs of a fight, perhaps with an attacker who pushed Forrestal from the window. If the investigators wanted to make a murder look like a suicide, a failed hanging would provide cover for the signs of struggle near the site of Forrestal's death. But officially, his death was ruled as a tragic suicide, presumably the result of years of guilt about his role in developing nuclear bombs. While the Manhattan Project ended with the close of World War II, the atomic race was just heating up. The Soviet Union, thanks in part to their espionage activities during the war, had developed their own atomic bombs. However, Cold War-era nuclear weaponry lies outside the scope of the Manhattan Project and the figures involved in the atomic bomb's development. So we'll wrap up the first part of our discussion of the Manhattan Project here. Next week, we'll explore some of the conspiracy theories that surround the Manhattan Project and the people involved with it. Conspiracy theory number one, 
highly placed officials on the Manhattan Project, including J. Robert Oppenheimer, spied on behalf of the Soviet Union to help the Soviets develop a bomb of their own. Conspiracy number two. Atomic bomb testing attracted the attention of extraterrestrials, and the Manhattan Project's breakthroughs directly led to first contact and a long history of covert contact with intelligent alien life. And conspiracy theory number three. Manhattan Project scientists intentionally covered up the harmful effects of a nuclear byproduct called fluoride. Today, fluoride is frequently added to municipal water supplies to improve the public's dental hygiene, which could be the result of a malicious cover-up initiated during the Manhattan Project. Finally, we'll discuss some oddball conspiracy theories, ranging from the Manhattan Project's connection to a pagan cult to related top-secret government programs exploring interdimensional travel and time travel. Even without conspiracy theories, the Manhattan Project still holds a lot of mystery as a top-secret military operation. The official story already includes international espionage, government cover-ups, and a fundamental shift in global power. From there, the conspiracy theories get even wilder. We'll see how next time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 